Welcome to God is Open. Uh, today on God is Open, we have our, our very favorite guest with us back again, Joseph Sabo, and I am your host, Christopher Fisher. But Joe Sabo, say hi to the audience. It's that say hi thing again that's I'm super awkward. I'm forced you to say hi. You say hi now, or I know where you live, and I'll drive a long time to get there through the rain and snow or whatever else we have here. Hello. I that wasn't good hey. enough. If I don't say hello, does that mean you're coming over to hang out? Yeah, you, you have to be more enthusiastic, though. You gotta be like, "Hello," and then, uh, you know, hi guys. You gotta inspire the audience. Make them love you. Make them love you. But today's they topic, they do yeah. love you. They love the beard. I need, I need a better beard. But uh, well, today's topic is actually gonna be on uh, the political spectrum of open theism. It seems to me. It seems to me that uh, the majority of open theists, uh, it might not be everyone's experience, but in my experience, the majority of open theists are political leftists. And, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll see this. Not, not every open theist Facebook page uh, centers around political leftists. But if you get a wider feel for the, the heavier populated open theist pages, it seems like it's dominated by the political left. Uh, real quick story on that. My, my sister went to uh, Augustana College in, in Sioux Falls, and uh, she's talking to me about this super leftist teacher, um, you know, uh, abortion and for everyone, stuff like that. And uh, she, she was talking theology one day, and she identified herself as an open theist, which was really confusing to my sister at the time because, uh, you know, open theism was pretty much synonymous with believing the Bible, you know, uh, adopting biblical values, which is typically not the same thing as leftist political values if, if you get to what i'm saying but no, uh, sabo yeah yeah killing bait well killing babies is in the bible so that's maybe not a great example but abortion is definitely not right and so god he says uh he he's outraged when when israel's killing their babies and he, right. he, he laments, he's like, I never even thought about commanding you guys to do this. It's, it's this uh, shock and outrage, and you, and you feel the emotion pouring from the text, the, the utter disgust. And then yeah. in the Levitical laws, you have, you know, people often quote an eye for eye and a tooth for the tooth. That's in the context of a man struggling with another man and then killing a baby in utero. And what happens is when the baby's born, whatever happens to that baby that happens to that man. So if you're struggling with someone else and you have negligent homicide of an unborn infant, you yourself are put down. And uh, so it's it's a pretty serious consequence for people harming that life of the unborn baby. I also have uh, articles on uh, my other site, Reality is Not Optional, about abortion in ancient uh, Jewish literature. You'll find in the apocalypses, Apocalypse of, uh, what is it, Apocalypse of Peter, where where those who had abortions are, they're covered up to their, you know, up to their uh, noses or whatever in like baby parts, suffering from all eternity, the women who have aborted their babies. It's these horrific scenes. And so it's a very serious value, which coincidentally is also associated with leftist positions. Yeah. And I don't even really understand why that is, to be honest with you. You know, I don't understand why abortion is a left-right thing. I don't. I guess I don't understand why that doesn't translate across the political spectrum more. You know what I mean? Like you'd have some 
conservatives that are for abortion and some leftists that are against it, unless it's just that the general ideologies draw a specific kind of person, I guess. But I would expect there to be some sort of, uh, you know, mixing and bleed through, but we don't really see that at all. Uh, I, I see a little bit of it. There's, there's a little bit, uh, you know, back when, uh, we, we were hosting this pro-life guy at my house back when I was uh, in college or high school or whatever. And this guy, he was a, he was a full-time pro-lifer, but he also had a passion for animals. He was an animals rights activist. He just considered abortion the greater evil. And so the whole time he's there, he's trying to convince us to go vegan and not ever like uh, kill or eat any animals. And so he tries to guilt us into this. We had this cat named Boswell. And he's like, here, let me set up a scenario for you. And he says, uh, so your cat, you like your cat, right? And we're like, yeah, we like the cat. It's a really good cat. And he's like, okay, what if I offer, I were to offer you $30,000 for that cat? He's like, hold on, hold on. But what I do with that cat is I bring it out to the driveway and then I cut his throat and let it die. Would you take that deal? And then me and my brothers were looking around at each other we're like, yeah, we'll get another cat. They're like 10 bucks. Right. <laughs> so it kind of backfired. He's trying to use like an empathy appeal because we have a personal attachment with this animal. Uh, but in, in biblical theology, animals are, are just animals. They don't have real inherent value. We're not supposed to go out and torture animals or anything like that. Uh, we, we don't, uh, you know, try to purposely hurt animals to inflict pain. But they are just animals. And it's... You know, it is sad when animals die. It is is part of the curse of the flood that the animals are wiped out as well. It's a real thing. There's there's real value being destroyed, but they're not people though. And uh, but that was pretty funny. That that animal activist, he had his heart in the right place. Uh, he was he was fighting a pro life fight, uh, and he's a good guy. I like him. His his uh, crucial flaw was trying to bet your empathy against thirty grand. That's uh, yeah. Just not- <laughs> that's like what what's our upper limit it's like how much money have we invested into feeding this cat already it's like well how much is a new cat you know 100 100 bucks maybe for a, a the the premium quality new cats you know we brought our cat to the vet this dying stupid cat and it's like falling apart and it's just decrepit and uh the vet said this cat is in good health. It'll last forever. We're like, ah, and then they're like, but its teeth are pretty bad. So it'll be $300 to clean this cat's teeth. I'm like, no, I'm not spending $300 to clean this stupid, decrepit, dying cat. The cat just walks around puking on my floors all day. That's what these cats do. I think we've probably talked about that before. I'm not going to spend all that money on that cat. I'll buy a new cat for, for 300 bucks. Can you just put this cat down for me? The kids don't want to put this cat down. But it's on its last legs. It's good. Yeah. But anyways, it's, back back to the point. I'm gonna refocus us. We've talked enough about uh, putting down my sweet cats. Unless you got a cat to put down. I have a cat puking on carpet story now. Also, since we've done the podcast, our cat has started puking all over the carpet. That's what they like do. Over the, over the last three weeks, maybe. And we think there's a blockage, so he's got to go to the vet, and maybe he'll have to be put down as well, which is gonna be sad for my daughter. I don't. I mean, I don't really care about the cat too much, you know, but I don't want it to be like puking on my carpets and suffering. So, yeah. Yeah. Me suffering when I'm scrubbing that puke stain out with that, uh, walk around with, the, you know, the carpet cleaning spray and then a scrub brush. I, yeah. I feel bad for my own suffering. 
<laughs> right. Well, I don't have to clean my puke up. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Fantastic. So it seems to me that most open theists are political leftists. They support things like abortion. I think uh, Bob Enyart, when we were first talking about building any sort of open theist site, and Bob Enyart is the president of Colorado Right to Life or something like that. He does a lot of pro-life work. And he was very hesitant about even including uh, Gregory Boyd's uh, work, even linking to Gregory Boyd as an open theist because of this this issue that Gregory Boyd isn't really a pro-lifer. He might be like a quasi-pro-lifer, but he's not against abortion. He doesn't want abortion illegal, anything like that. So it's a very serious issue. And my position is uh, open theists should probably band together and create uh, cohesion and not try to alienate one another. You know, we, we could debate these other things elsewhere. But uh, for this one issue, we, sh we should have a consolidated front in order to uh, fight, fight the rest of the world. The rest of the world's already coming down on us pretty hard. But that's a different issue to fight at a different time in a different venue. And that's not a reason to call someone not an open theist. No. And I'm pro-life too. Um, I do think that there's some... Um... So ab abortion to me is like eviction to murder, right? You evict the fetus from the womb so that you can kill it. Um, I don't think that that's okay. I I'm okay with eviction to adoption, you know, so if you get pregnant but you don't want the baby and there's some stage of development where it's possible to remove the fetus from the mother and the mother's still responsible for the medical care of the child in order to get it to where it's able to go with another family or something, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I th myself, I think there's inherent parental responsibility for chi children. Like, let's say there's a woman who's raped and she's pregnant, but then she gets onto this abandoned island. She doesn't have any societal support, and she has this baby. It's not okay for her to just kill that child. She no. has she has some sort of parental responsibility, even if she didn't uh, consent to making that baby. She still has some parental responsibility to her own flesh and blood, to her own baby. Men do as well, and uh, the law allows men to get away with stuff in a lot of instances, and that, that should not happen. Men should be responsible for taking care of their own children. The law shouldn't, of course, discriminate against men and uh, deny men parental rights of uh, custody, but it should keep men responsible for their own children as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so abortion is one of the big issues, uh, dividing between the left and the right, kind of, in uh, the American political scene. It's, it's just, it's, it's very confusing to me how any Christian can vote for abortion as a value. It's, you have to basically dehumanize the baby in the womb in order to do that. It's, uh, yeah, or else what are you killing? You're, you're killing someone, right? What? What is the thing that you're killing in abortion? A person, right? Yeah. Or a potential person, maybe at some stage of development, but for sure. You know, I don't, I don't really get that either. Um, Greg Boyd, actually, in the last couple of weeks, I think, has he released a, a podcast on his Renew site where that people can write in and ask questions about this very issue about abortion. And um, his position, in a nutshell, is... Um, it's not really, it's not really the church's job to influence the political sphere. 
So it's more important to ask, you know, if there's a woman that's considering abortion, it's more important for the church to find a way to serve her, to try to help her carry the baby to term and do what they can as far as that goes. But like you said, he's not a, he's not avidly out there trying to, you know, make abortion illegal or reverse Roe versus Wade or any of that stuff. So that it, it seems to be almost a copped out to me. I mean, if, if you're in Nazi Germany and uh, you have a chance to get in on a conspiracy to kill Hitler, you know, you're, you're going to take that. I don't want to go to argument at Hitler. But the concept is there that we do what we can to influence the culture for the good. And if it means, uh, you know, opposing corrupt political systems, we should be on the front lines doing that. Yeah. And that answer does seem to me a little bit like trying to have your cake and eat it, too, you know, in a sense, because you you're sort of appeasing the leftists because you're not advocating removing their right to kill babies. And at the same time. Yeah, it is important for the church to come alongside people in need like that, that are considering those kinds of things and do the kingdom for that person, you know. So there is a little bit of, I don't want to say fence post writing because that seems a little negative, but it's it's a very uh, middle of the road position to have, I think. So let's talk about the political spectrum real quick. Uh, what would you say categorizes left from right? What's the difference between a leftist and someone on the right wing? Oh, how philosophical should I get here? Because there is no difference between those on the left and those in the no. So um, I, I would categorize, and I'll just use typical definitions here. You know, leftists for the most part are uh, pro-choice. They're pro-big government. They look to the government sort of to fix their problems. Uh, capitalism is evil. Rich people are evil. Um, I'm poor. You have money. Give me your money. Uh, those on the right. Um, and, and traditionally the left has, has been in the past, um, anti-war, but that sort of wing of the left does not exist anymore as far as I'm aware. So the one thing that both spectrums do have in common is if it comes time to invade Iraq, everybody's on board for invading Iraq, you know? Um, but aside from that, the right for the most part is pro-choice. Um, their economic views are not uh, sort of a central planning thing, at least in their speech for the most part. You know, they um, advocate businesses and uh, business owners, privatization of, um, you know, things in society. Uh, I, I think that those are probably the biggest differences in my mind, just yeah. using the traditional language of left and right. So in, in high school, I had this political science teacher as one of these advanced political science classes or whatever. And uh, he, he pulls up one of those, uh, you know, they used to put those little transparencies and they would project them up onto the screen. And then you take a little yeah, marker and then you write on it and then it projects onto the screen. It's very ancient, ancient dinosaur technology. But uh, what he did is he's like, here's the difference between the left and the right. Uh, the, those on the left want more and more government until you get to total government. Those on the right want less and less government until you get to zero government. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good definition. And so he's like, let's start categorizing views. He's like, okay, so the Nazis, or he, he starts with the communists. Communists are all the way 
far over to the left. He's like, uh, the liberals will be right here on the left wing. He's like, conservatives will be here on the right wing. He's like, and Nazis, they are the far right wing. And he's like, I raised my hand. I was like, excuse me, this, the Nazis were not anarchists. They didn't believe no. in no government. They were totalitarians. They were, they were a different stripe of totalitarians. They were a national socialist. Socialists, it, right. it, it's in their name. And it's in their political party platform. If you read their platform, it's all social security, workers' unions, uh, things like that. Uh, controlling businesses is what they did when they came into office. They they made sure that their politically connected individuals would control all the industries. They weren't about liberalizing the government. They weren't about uh, removing laws, restrictions, or regulations. They were far leftists, according to the teacher's own model. And the teacher's like, well, you know, this actually is more of a circle than a line. It just bleeds over. It's like... Yeah, so I... Long story short, uh, public school teachers are kind of dumb sometimes. Uh, Thomas Soltz says they come from the bottom third of college graduates. And, and, I and, and that, that's my experience, too. But uh, I would see it more as a chart. And so you have uh, social conservatives and social leftists or social liberals. A liberal is a word that's been hijacked in America. In, in Europe, liberal means free market. Liberal means, you know, yeah. not wanting control. But uh, the progressive parties in America have taken that term for themselves. So I'd say uh, we, we can allow them to have that. But uh, it's a linguistic move. So the conservatives are up here. Liberals are down here. Those wanting a maximum government over here, those wanting zero government over here. And so we could chart ourselves in more of more of a chart rather than just a line spectrum. So there could be anarchists who are, are Christians, Christian anarchists, and there could be anarchists who are complete uh, free love hippie leftists. Even though even the homeschooling movement has a lot of uh, traditional not Christian people who who just don't want their kids in public schools because they want to uh, give them their own flavor of leftist education. It, it's it's a very interesting subset of the homeschooling community, which uh, th those people who don't vaccinate anti-vaxxers are predominantly predominantly uh, the political left. You know, the, the, the socially liberal type of people are the same people that are in these enclaves uh, opposing vaccinations, which is a very anti-statist, anti-societal value. It's more of an individualistic value. So you, yeah. you get, get these weird subcultures. That's interesting. I didn't know that. You know, traditionally, homeschooling has been more of a conservative thing. And it, it's funny what you said about the word liberal being hijacked. Um, I didn't know that. And then the first time I read uh, Hayek, he uses the word liberal a lot in the traditional sense to be an advocate of liberty. And I'm reading him and I'm like, what is he even talking about? You know, and then it, then it kind of started to make sense. And I looked and, oh, yeah, this word did get hijacked for some reason. And that's something that the left does, it seems. You know, this is going really well. Let's grab it and take it for ourselves. And now it's a part of us. And we're doing really well, just like this thing was. So, Well, it's, it's all about controlling the debate. And so just back to the abortion debate, what are those who support abortion? What are they called? They're called pro-choice because that sounds a lot better than pro-abortion. And they will, right. they will deny adamantly, 
I am not pro-abortion. Really? You're not? You don't think that a woman sh should be able to have it if, if she wants it? You're not, uh, you know, high-fiving her for her, her right to do that? Uh, you are pro-abortion. You just like pro-choice because it sounds better because people like choices. People like to be able to pick from alternatives. But uh, if that choice is like infanticide, uh, killing your, your uh, newborn, as in the, the, the latest thing that come out in the uh, political scene is, uh, what is it, the Virginia governor talking about killing newborn babies even after yeah. birth, showing that it's all about infanticide. It's, it's not about, you know, uh, women's rights or anything like that. It's, it's not about, you know, the choice. It is about infanticide, killing unwanted babies. And that dude probably is like, I'm going to show all you leftists how to really leftist. We're not just going to kill them at, you know, nine months or eight months. We're going to wait for them to actually be born. Then we're going to kill them. And like he, for, he could wear that as a badge of honor among his leftist friends, you know, something for them to look up to. And that's kind of disgusting and it sounds terrible, but that's the way that that works. You yeah, know? it's pretty horrific. Yeah. And so it, it, it tends to be on this spectrum. And when we're looking at this spectrum, it tends to be that socially liberal and uh, politically leftist or political socialist, those who want more government, they tend to be towards the right on this, this spectrum, towards the philosophical side. And those all towards the right tend to be uh, those, those people who are also limited government or, or anarchists or those who, who support traditional conservative values. Like uh, opposing uh, same-sex marriages, uh, opposing homosexuality, that calling homosexuality a sin, uh, opposing abortion, and uh, those types of values tend to tr trend more towards the biblical open theists. Is that your experience as well? It seems that way. You know, I think that probably just comes from the the general uh, mind frame of you know the individual. So if you have a guy like Bob Enyart, who tries to get all of his information for living and how to conduct himself in life and what to believe and what truth is from the Bible, you know, and, and starts with that. And then you have other people who sort of use the Bible almost in a roundabout way to validate their philosophy a bit. So there's a there's there's somewhat of a of a disconnect and a difference there. So it's kind of no surprise to me that you know, those on this chart that are more biblically oriented in their approach to theology, it, it would almost seem that the Bible teaches these values of, you know, pro-life and, and things like that. So, yeah, that's yeah. definitely my experience. One very surprising uh, data point uh, on this line is Walter Brueggemann. And so he has the phenomenal book, uh, Theology of the Old Testament. You read through it, he talks about the text, he focuses on the text, focuses on who God is, he talks about, he is so in-depth, it's so good, it's it's all about the text and the text meaning. Then you get to his latter chapters, and then he just starts talking about social issues, and he's detached from the biblical text. And uh, it turns out it's uh, basically social justice values, where he thinks the government has a position to stop rampant consumerism. Uh, I think he calls it militaristic consumerism. Uh, and it's it, it seems like to be a stark departure from the text as soon as Walter Brueggemann moves from his area of expertise. He, he's, he's an expert in the Bible. He's not an expert in economics. 
not an expert in politics, but uh, he he kind of just wants to talk about those subjects anyways. Yeah, it's kind of annoying. It's like, why couldn't you just leave that out, man? So here, here's the thing that uh, I kind of noticed on the chart. So uh, out of all these people here, I'm probably the only person on the list with an economics background, you know, taking econ oh. in, uh, in college. Uh, my uh, I had a political science, computer science double major and math and econ minors. And I've read so much econ books. I've uh, read so much up or so, so much uh, articles online and podcasts. I was consumed by this stuff. And so I have an econ background, which differentiates differentiates me from a lot of these individuals. Even Bob Enyard, I was talking to one day, and I was probably in college at the time. And I was talking to him, and we're talking about even uh, coinage of money. What things does Bob Enyard want government to do? And one that he threw out was, well, they should be printing money. I'm like, well, you know, uh, back before uh, these these uh, anti-private coinage laws came about banks did issue their own currency that that was a thing in during the colonial times in america there there was there was a discount rate on redemption of those bills but that was mainly due to anti-branching laws that didn't allow uh, banks to establish branches in other states but it was working pretty well privately coining coinage of your own currency and that was only reversed when when the u.s government wanted to print money in order to finance wars they made illegal printing of money uh illegal private printing of money what did he say to that he said oh yeah that's a that's a good point but uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's funny. So I, I'm even more farther to the right than uh, Bob Anyari. He thinks the government should be doing more more things than maybe even I do. Maybe if the government wanted to print their own money, that that's fine. But making private coinage of money illegal, that uh, that's creating an artificial monopoly. And they're just trying to make sure that they don't have to compete because the government likes to debase their currency. And if there's a private coinage of money which in which the currency doesn't depreciate based on people printing extra money if they, if they have a solid backing to their money or or even if they, it's something like bitcoin where where the value was stable and there's no propensity to inflate there's no way to inflate the currency the supply you know the government doesn't like competition because it, it'll drive the government out of the business yeah i don't they wouldn't be able so what you're suggesting sounds good you know like the government could just be a, a competitor among different currencies and we could choose which currency we want but as long as they only accept tax revenue and dollars i mean they'd still have a monopoly for all intents and purposes because no matter what you did you have to convert at least some of it into u.s dollars in order to pay taxes i'm i wonder i, I think that i'm probably I'm, I'm not even on this list if anyone looks you can see my name's not on here that's because you I'm write a book to, i'm so far to <laughs> Well, I'm so far to the right, I fell off. You're so far to the right. So you are an anarchist. I am an anarcho-capitalist, yes. And I would call myself a minarchist. I think that the system that's set up in judges, which is a system that also we find throughout history, Iceland was stateless for a thousand years, utilizing a system very similar to the time of the judges, with where a series of judges, there's no taxes that happened. People brought their disputes to local leaders uh, for resolution. Even modern-day Somalia, if you want to listen to a really good podcast, I, I, I think there's one by Tom Woods in which he interviews an expert on Somalia where it's entitled, Somalia is better off than when it was under socialism. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, 
that's a very interesting podcast because we compare it to us, but that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is what he did, which is compare Somalia now to Somalia under a socialist government. And it's it's not even a competition that the people there are better off. You know? There's a lot of successful anarchist experiments throughout history. There's uh, what uh, Pennsylvania uh, during uh, the colonial times was an anarchist state. There's the, the Colwoon Walled City, which is uh, my favorite example of a a uh, very anarchist society. If there's there's a John Claude Van Damme movie where he goes and fights and they bring him through these like these tunnels. That's that's the Kowloon Walled City. It, this was a uh, area in in Hong Kong or China, and it was just uh, uh, several blocks of buildings that are all 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 built together. And and they lived without government. They they just built their electricity and their plumbing wherever. And uh, they, they got by fairly well. People would actually go into the city in order to get illegal dentistry operations because, you know, dentistry is pretty expensive. So if a dentist loses their license, well, they could still make money by practicing these in these illegal markets and fulfilling uh, services for people who don't have enough money to get normal dentistry services. So it was a functioning economy, a functioning anarchy. Yeah. And... That's like a thing, you know, that could happen. I, I remember I read some story in Florida of, uh, I think it was Florida. The sheriffs ran like a six-month undercover sting operation to catch this husband and wife dentist who were driving around in a in like a truck pulling people's teeth and doing bridge work for them, like super cheap. You know, they had like <laughs> hidden cameras and all these fake appointments and real appointments and evaluations and like get them on camera talking about how much this is going to cost and they've got no license and stuff. Just just because these people are pulling teeth trying to make a living, you know, it's crazy, man. It's like, I don't get it, you know. But. Yeah, the government spends our taxpayer dollars to crack down on individuals who want to save some money by going to a van opera. It's not like... It's not like they, they are presenting themselves as a legitimate operation. They're like, hey, we, we're we like a gold bond certified, five-star dentistry, uh, top rated in the country. We're doing business out of a van. You want some dentistry? <laughs> sir? We'll open up the van. There's our dentist chair. And we're legit. No, no one, no one, they weren't selling themselves as legit. People knew what they were doing and getting into. But the U.S. government likes to crack down on mutual consensual relationships. Yeah, we can't have those because then then daddy government can't get his fingers in there and get some of those dollars so right that's uh bob yander has a little phrase like uh you know the, these left leftists the people on the left uh they they want to intervene when it they don't want the government to intervene when it comes to consensual sexual relationships but they they want to intervene when it comes into uh, consensual like wage relationships if I want to work for less than minimum wage oh then the government steps up and stops this consensual relationship from happening yeah and that's a good example of the people who who want who want that like a minimum wage law there is no economic principle that I'm aware of that says yeah minimum wage is a great idea let's boost because all you're doing is requiring the person that wants work to be able to perform that amount of labor. You know, maybe you don't know how to perform that amount of labor. If minimum wage is $15 an hour and I can only give you like a $10 an hour of value, well, now I don't have a job. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, basically it functions as a price floor. And those people yeah. who can't produce that much in production, they just are out of a job. 
And then it also, because the cost of production goes up, the prices go up universally. My brother was working for Godfather's Pizza when South Dakota was raising the minimum wage, and he was against it because now his hours are going to be slashed and the price of pizza is going to go up. So his life working as a minimum wage worker was being made worse by the U.S. government. And I was a server working for $3 an hour, and a lot of these labor laws I opposed as well, like any mandatory breaks or mandatory lunch breaks, which would often shift my section from when I have a profitable section on the floor, it would shift me into a less profitable section. I would, I would rather forego those mandatory lunch hours or breaks or whatever or anything they wanted to do and uh, just go ahead and remain in, and work my full time in order to maximize the money that I'm getting. But the government doesn't like individual choices. They, they think that uh, they need to take care of everyone. And there's some people who like that. Uh, I think human nature in general, people like others to take care of them. They, they generally don't like choices. No, yeah, they want to look to something outside themselves to tell them what to do or how to live or fix their problems for them or make decisions for them. You know, it's like a... The government's, to us, it's an annoyance and it doesn't make sense and it's stupid and we can live without it and it just hinders everything. But to other people, it's a warm blanket and, you know, a glass of hot cocoa at night in front of the campfire. Like, it's just comforting that it's there. And it, I, I guess I don't really understand what the difference is, you know, in the human mind. Like, how is there something in you and I that predisposes us to to have our political views is there something in the mind of you know some leftist that predisposes them to have some political views like is that a biological chemical thing is that an upbringing thing is that a combination of all of them i don't know there's probably a book about that i would imagine somewhere yeah uh the big five actually predicts uh big five uh psychology let's see personality test so the big five is a personality test that people could take and this actually predicts there, there's trending positions um, on uh, how people rank according to the political spectrum. I'm going to try to find the big five. Openness. And so who do you think is more open typically, those on the political left or the political right? I'd say the right. Uh, well, that's not actually accurate. Openness is like the quality of wanting new experiences, wanting to deal with change, wanting to deal with, uh, you know, uh, get new views, new information. That tends to be a leftist value. Whereas uh, the people who like consistency, like routine, okay. they tend to be conservatives. Conscientiousness, I don't think that trends either way. Uh, you know, uh, left and right, we're both about equally uh, conscientious. Extroversion, I don't think that trends. Agreeableness, uh, doesn't really trend politically. So neuroticism, neuroticism is uh, basically think of that as mental stability. If you're high in neuroticism, you're mentally unstable. You're more likely to blow small problems out of proportion. You know, the sky is sky is falling. Who do you think is neurotic, the left or the right? That's definitely the left. It is the left. So people who are high in neuroticism are people on the left. And so the people who are high in neuroticism, they want someone to come save them. They, they don't, they can't handle their own problems. They're less individualistic, you know, save me, save me. The sky is falling. So climate change is coming. It's going to wipe us out in 12 years, 12 years. We're all going to be dead. Come save me. I, I don't know if you remember uh, Paul Ehrlich. No, 
So Paul Ehrlich was a famous uh, environmental science doomsday uh, predictor, and he bet Julian Simon. It's a famous bet. Julian Simon said, you know, all your doom and gloom, that England wouldn't exist in the year uh, 2000. This was like in the 80s that they were talking about these things, uh, that there's going to be mass starvation and mass death. Uh, Julian Simon says that all these naysaying predictions are going to come false. Why? Because of human innovation. Humans are smarter than you give them credit for, and they adapt to changing circumstances. They react to to incentives. Human beings react to incentives. This is a basic principle of economics. And the environmental science doomsday predictor, they he says, oh, no. And then Julian Simon, he's my guy, and uh, in his experience growing up, ad- adults would make absolutely ludicrous claims about all sorts of things and uh, without any repercussion, personal repercussion. So he learned at a very early age to say, you want to bet, you know? So put your money where your mouth is uh, because, uh, you know, then you have some personal, uh, you have something to lose in case you're wrong. You, you have to fess up when you are wrong. Want to bet. That, those, are, those are critical words for getting people to show whether or not they're being intellectually honest or dishonest. But Julian Simon, he took a bet. And he didn't take a bet that England wouldn't exist in the year 2000. And he wrote this in his population bomb. I got the book. I bought the book. All his doomsdayer nonsense, craziness, we're all going to die. He didn't want to bet on anything like that. So instead, he's proposed a bet on resources. We'll pick five resources and... uh, well, we'll take it at, uh, they made the bet in like 1980, and then uh, the payout will be in the future at a certain time, and we'll just pay the difference. So if the prices, if everything goes to hell, and the prices of these materials skyrocket, Julian Simon is going to owe a lot of money to Paul Ehrlich. But if the prices decrease, uh, then Paul Ehrlich, he's going to have to write a check to Julian Simon, and lo and behold, the resources decreased in value, which which is fantastic. This because uh, uh, Ehrlich, he was predicting mass starvation, uh, people dying, countries being dissolved, huge riots, the whole world going to hell in a handbasket. Fantastically wrong, and uh, you just see that in the in the price of resources, which would be skyrocketing, skyrocketing in in the case of all, all these mass calamities. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic point of history in which which a realist, someone who understands economics, who understands humans, understands uh, how humans respond to incentives, came up against a climate scientist who wanted, he wanted massive U.S. reaction. He wanted massive government action to solve all these problems that he's predicting. Um, and uh, who's right? The economist, because the economist is the realist. And that's one reason that it tends to be the people on the right we don't trust climate scientists. We don't, we don't cl- trust these people saying the world's going to end by global warming, you know, things like that. We must we must spend 50% of our GDP to avert massive catastrophe. Well, no, you, you've been shown wrong in the fall. It, you've been shown wrong in the past. You have. You don't understand economics. You don't understand cost-benefit analysis. You don't, maybe, maybe we might be better off investing in traditional investments now and wait till a time when we're wealthier, and then tackle the problem. That cost-benefit analysis hasn't been made. Uh, just just dumping massive amounts of money to a problem that we can't quantify, we don't know how to solve, and and if uh, better solutions won't exist in the future, dumping all that money in right now just doesn't make any sense. 
No, and the market will figure all that out. You know, when it when it becomes beneficial for someone to, if there is an issue to to tackle it in some way, maybe you change the way that humans live on the face of the earth. Maybe we have to, you know, worst case scenario, we have to walk around in like some kind of suit. We need little, you know, animal sanctuaries or something because it's too hot for them. All that would get figured out at some point. It's not like the temperature in the earth is going to go up four degrees and everyone's just going to throw their hands up and say, well, I guess that's it. We had a good run, fellas. You know, that's not really how that works. It's like every time that there's a humanity over, over the years because of um, incentive and because of profit and all that has consistently risen to the to the challenge provided by um, the environment that we live in on this planet, the weather, you know, all that stuff. Lightning rods. I mean, come on. Yeah, I uh, I had a podcast on uh, Epstein. Uh, is it Joel Joe Epstein or Joel Epstein or? Uh, Epstein, but his his main thing that he focuses on is when we're talking about any type of science or any type of issues, we need we need to establish our basis. It's like, uh, what do we care about? Our value is being pro-human, and I see those on the right as very pro-human. We we think that human beings are rational, functioning creatures who who can innovate, who can uh, invent new things, who who can think for themselves, who can accomplish, who don't have to be babied. Whereas those who with socialist leanings with uh, government must solve all our problems, they tend to infantilize people, think that individuals are stupid. And only if you had the right people in power wielding, wielding the strong arm of government, you could you can mold people into the, the perfect human beings. You could, you know, shift the incentive slightly to manipulate them, to get them to do exactly what you want and to get reach your policy objectives. And it seems to me that the history of the 20th century has shown that type of thinking has led to the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. The population, trying to shift population, trying to reform population, not understanding how individuals think and act, not treating people like individuals, but treating people like robots, like chess pieces, like pegs on a board that you just have to manipulate the right way. Yeah. Central planning is the doom of humanity. You know, like, could you imagine if the communists, like, didn't fail right when it did or something like that you know like how many more millions of people would have suffered and starved and it's you get a bunch of people trying to figure out how everyone else is supposed to live and like we weren't designed to live under that sort of system you know we're not built for that and we're not built to run that sort of system that's not a thing that we're supposed to be doing or even aspiring to so right it's, it seems that way uh so I, I would say my our side, the, the those on the right, our side is the pro-human side. Our side is the side that loves human beings and wants to treat people with equity, equality, whereas those on the left want to treat people like robots, figures to manipulate and to force into their way. We think that individuals can make their own decision and rational decisions at that, free from uh, you know the influence of the state. The state doesn't have to step in and tell us, if we could drink unpasteurized milk or not, you know, that's, that's not the state's role. The state's role is not to tell us, you know, what type of medical treatments we can and can't take for ourselves. And it seems to me also that these values are shared by the Bible. I was talking to uh, my good friend, Irenic uh, Pelagian. Uh, that's his, uh, his, his uh, name that he goes by. But it's like, 
It's like, what is the crime in the Old Testament for casual cocaine use? What, what is the penalty? Yeah. There's no penalty. It's, no. it's, it, it may be immoral, but not all morality in the Old Testament is linked to the criminal code. There's, there's no. things that are immoral that are not illegal. And people should be free to make decisions for themselves, and that includes bad decisions. You know, if you want to do a bunch of drugs and ruin your life, then, you know, I would encourage you not to do that. There's something better for you, but if that's your decision, you know, you should be free to do it. Like, you shouldn't be penalized for that in any way. And that would and, put us further to the right than even Bob Anier, because he's all pro-drug uh, legislation. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm off. I'm off the chart over here, man. I'm Fell like, off, I don't. No taxes. No government. No national defense. All drugs should be legal, or decriminalized. I'd say, you know. But um, I do. Abortion for me, since I'm an anarcho-capitalist, I have to come up with a way, to sort of keep that. It seems because. On the surface, you know, you would think an anarcho-capitalist would be pro-abortion because it's the woman's body and she should be able to do whatever she wants with it. But that's not really how that works because, um, like you talked about earlier, there's an implied uh, responsibility there. You know, if if you, let's say you're walking down the down the road and there's a guy in a lake that's drowning, right? Are you re are you required morally to help him if you didn't put him there? You should. You should. But would you say it's a moral requirement to help them? I would say that uh, if it's within your ability to help without a significant cost on your part, then you, it's in your moral prerogative to help. But it wouldn't, okay. shouldn't be criminal. No, it shouldn't be criminal. However, if you push the man in the lake, well, now you are responsible to get him out of there because otherwise it's drowning. So I, I look at I look at consensual sex that way. You know, if you engage in this act that you know has a chance that you're going to become pregnant and you do become pregnant, well, you just push the man in the lake and now you're responsible for him. You know, um, issues where there's rape, I think, is then becomes more of a uh, an evict to adopt situation as opposed to an evict to murder situation. And in an anarcho-capitalist society, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that there would there would be more, um, you know, charity groups and organizations that would help women like that. It's actually interesting. They've done studies that show uh, the church used to be the like the number one funding agency in the United States of social programs, so things to help uh, unwed mothers, welfare programs, homeless shelters, and things like that. With the rise of government and taxation the church has has stopped doing those things which leads to more homelessness you know more unwed mothers more abortions more social programs needed by the government and things like that so yeah this is a, government, it kind of hamstrings the church so that they kind of can't do the things that they used to do and should be doing this is a well-known effect it's the crowding out effect when the government yeah. steps in to provide education they crowd out private providers of that education you know, this this is stuff that happens with the government. When the government, you know, you know, even fire departments used to be a, on a volunteer basis. We used to have free firefighting. There's there's a really good uh, article on EconLib that talk. It's I think it's called like Up in Smoke, in which talks about the rise of how fire stations became 
a political entity and it was tied to union favoritism and being able to pl appoint political people to uh, prized uh, positions. And uh, even in the movie Gangs of New York, you kind of see this uh, political uh, mentality with, with it displayed in, in their fire departments when they two different agencies, they run to a, fight a fire and then they, they duke it out between themselves. This is the reality that the, the fire, fire departments became very politicized and they turned into a political appointment game. Whereas before they were a free service that individuals, they, they aspire to be the volunteer firefighters. And most of America right now even runs on volunteer firefighters. That's our primary stock. It, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a government entity. It doesn't have to be a quote unquote public utility. There's, there's nothing that forces it. It's just a fluke of history that we have that. Yeah, pretty much. So, but, uh, Going back to our original topic, open theists and how the topic again. <laughs> yeah, so we got we got on all our, our, our rants about our different issues. So open theists, they, they tend to push left. And I think that's in part because I think the average human being is a socialist at heart. If you look at things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, those things are very, very popular, even among uh, self-described conservatives. Uh, they, too, like government spending. They, too, like, uh, you know, uh, the Iraq war. How much how much money did we pump into the Iraq war? They want to build a, a beautiful, luxurious, uh, long-flowing wall along our border. They, they love government spending. When Republicans uh, take over the House, the Senate, and the presidency— they they spend like there's no limits. There's there's no bottom. Spending actually increases faster than under Democrats typically. Obama might be an exception. He spent a lot. He is a big spender. But uh, they both parties they love spending. Yeah, I mean, if you're printing the money, why not spend it? You know, I suppose. Yeah, um, you, that's if, a good that's a good point that humans are socialists at heart. I think that sounds about right. You know, even my daughter who's eight, she's always talking about fairness this, fairness that, like she wants to guarantee quality of outcome for everybody in the household. You know, it's like, that's not how that works. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, we have to deal with inequalities. There, there are natural inequalities that arise in any society, even in, in communist societies. You know, you might not be able to make very much money trying to open uh, businesses and excel that way, but you still competed with people for political power, political favoritism. You got the the nice brand new cars that came off the brand new Soviet assembly lines. Uh, if the higher you were in the party infrastructure, the higher you towards the top you are, the one of the more elites. Uh, and so people will find ways to distinguish themselves from others. They'll find areas to compete that they will stratify themselves. Money is just one of the ways that the U S system does it. And, and that's okay by me because the only way you make money in a capitalistic system is providing things of value. I mean, in the American system, you might be able to get government to give you subsidies, Solyndra, give us millions of dollars. We'll make your green energy panels and then the whole business collapse. You know, you can fleece the government, but that's a socialist program. Uh, the government trying to subsidize different industries. But in, in a market economy, and Bill Gates, you know, I use Windows every single day. How much money have I given Bill Gates? I've spent just a, just a smidge of my time to give Bill Gates 
any sort of money, some money that he'll never see, he'll never care about. He'll. It, it's very minuscule how much I've given Bill Gates, but Bill Gates has given me a product that I use, you know, 90% of my life, you know, 90% of my free time or whatever on, on this product. He's, he's provided me so much consumer economic value for my purchase. It's unfathomable. The internet, they, they they did a, they did a video. I think it was reason TV. And I think it was Drew Carey that was walking around and interviewing these people. How much, how much would it take to pay you to never go on the internet again? And it's in the millions of dollars. People would not give up the internet for millions of dollars. And how much do we pay that consumer surplus, that extra value that just goes to us for free? It's outstanding. We live in a modern miracle. This this world is amazing. I don't know if, if anyone's a scholar of history, but you look throughout history, it is a miserable time. I would not trade places with any of these people. If I were to trade places with anyone, it'd be people in the future from now who are living at a more technological, marvelous time than it is now. We are living in, in a basic utopia. We have reversed the curse of Genesis. God said, uh, for, for your food, you will labor. How, how much do we really labor? You know, one study came out and said that, uh, you know, in a typical office environment, people are only working like 30% of the time. And what do they do? They they press little keys on a keyboard, maybe. You know, they might take a phone call once in a while. And uh, then for that, I get internet, I get a car, you get food, you get, uh, you know, just just amazing prosperity. We have reversed God's curses. We are living in the laps of luxury and no better than any time ever in history. Uh, that's my my prosperity rant for today that was a pretty good prosperity rant you should get up there on the stage one time and let that thing fly out of there uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, just all, beautiful. it's all because of capitalism man and human innovation and um the government in no way shape or form contributes to uh human ingenuity or invention or um in any positive way. If anything, it's the opposite. They only constrain ingenuity and advancement. I'll tell you one thing communism did. One thing the Soviet oh. system did that's absolutely beautiful and uh, marvelous innovation. The AK-47. Beautiful, beautiful, AK- rifle, beautiful. But that, other than that. Was that engineered under communism? Yeah, they had uh, like a competition. They had various uh, rifle variants that the Soviet government was experiencing or uh, experimenting with. And uh, AK-47 came out of that uh, that uh, program. They actually took some uh, German engineers who had, uh, I don't know what, what the German rifle was. That was the precursor to the AK-47. But after World War II, they took some of even those engineers to help them in their AK-47 development pro- program. And there's other variants of the AK rifle. So 47 is just the serial number that uh, was assigned to that particular variant. So the government um, is so the, go- they, the government they, can they, produce they, stuff, but it just takes it takes a lot more investment. You have to just kill a hundred million people, uh, drive everyone into poverty, impoverish and ruin the lives of uh, countless more millions of people. Uh, start gulags, and then you might come up with one good invention. And you need to get some Germans to help you. And you get the Germans to help you. Those Germans, they could do anything. They're pretty good, man. There was a machining. I'm a machinist, and there was like a machining competition between the United States and Germany like 30 years ago or something like that. And the the contest was to 
create the smallest diameter drill possible that would still uh, cut through a certain kind of steel. And the United States went first and they created this tiny little drill. I couldn't even explain to you how small it is. And they sent it off to Germany. You know, this is our, this is our best effort here, you know. Um, and then some months later, half a year later, something like that, um, I guess the, the group or technical association, whatever it was that was part of this in the United States, they get a package in the mail from Germany and they open it and it's the drill that they sent over there. So they were pretty, feeling pretty good about themselves, you know, because obviously the Germans couldn't beat them or whatever. And then someone got to looking at it a little bit better and they had, they drilled a hole through the center of it. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. <clears throat> that is so funny. The Germans, they, they have a lot of good stuff. I was just watching on Netflix. They have the Mossad videos that talks about, you know, Israel's uh, secret service forces, kind of like the CIA. It's called the Mossad. And uh, after yep. World War II, they they went to this German enforcer guy, this like very scary guy who killed so many people. And they said, hey, how about you work for us? Uh, what you'll get in return is uh, you don't have to worry about us assassinating you. And he says, oh, yeah. And he became a special informant to Mossad. And so they recruited German assets to help them in their mission, killing all those individuals who want to rain down death and destruction against Israel. And that's one thing you'll yeah. see on the on the political left is that they want they, they want to enable individuals like Palestine who wants to bomb and kill all Israelites. They they hate Israel. Death to Israel. Death is more beloved than life is the Hamas's motto. And they they will they will think that these people are liberation fighters, whereas Israel, who just wants state sovereignty, they they want to stay out of these these areas. They they're fighting a defensive war. They'll they'll consider these people the enemy. These people the evil people. Yeah, and that's kind of a matter of perspective. I can see both sides there. You know, Israel's defending their homeland, what they perceive to be their homeland. The Arabs in the area perceive Israel as coming in and taking what was their homeland after World War II. You know, but the bottom line is all throughout history, empires rise and fall, land gets traded between cultures and peoples and things like that. So, you know, it's it's not as if, and it's just land, which is, again, why anarcho-capitalism is so sweet, because if there was no national borders, that wouldn't be a problem. The only border that would matter would be the border around your own personal domicile. So there would be no war, problem solved, done. Well, yeah, you could probably create uh, communities in anarcho-capitalism, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, you could have voluntary communities that get together and decide to... Game communities? And then yeah. could, could they, they wall off like an entire land like South Dakota? Absolutely, if they wanted to, sure. How about expand that to the borders of the United States? If they wanted to... If you got everyone within the borders that, that wanted to agree to whatever were the, the terms were for community membership and the fees associated with that and et cetera. Yeah, sure. You can do that, man. I think we're back to a state. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'd be a voluntary state that rose by the will of the people, but um, under anarcho-capitalism, the children that were born in there would not be uh, mandatory members of the community or the state. So there would, there would be some sort of choice that would have to be made. So right now it's like uh, you agree to the constitution because you happen to be born in the United States is sort of how that goes is the logic behind it. And under that sort of system, you can't, you can't do that. So. I, I myself find a huge problem with property rights that you, you arrive on a land or something like that. And you say, 
let's say you're a small tribe of Indians and it's in pre-colonial America. You say us 10 people own all of North and South Dakota territory and that's our land and no one else could have it. And you're like a band of 10 people. I don't think that people have unlimited rights to just put blanket claim over wide swaths of land. Um, I think there's definite issues with that. Yeah, there has to be some sort of investment made. So under that, like, yeah, you couldn't have 10 people laying claim to the whole state of California just because the colonials didn't get out there. You know, they don't own that land. If you've got some sort of structure or you've invested in some way in some sort of agriculture or crops or something like that, that then you're able to make a, a, a claim of stake there. But other than that, it's just free land, you know. And, and also with the settlers, you know, they would have been free probably to just travel. They should have been free under anarcho-capitalism to travel as they needed. And if there was some resources here, then, you know, we could work that out if they're yours or nobody owns them. So I can just take them for myself. So it gets, it gets a little weird there, but uh, yeah. thankfully we're not in colonial times and we don't have to worry about anarcho-capitalism when the settlers came because things are a little different now. So we've hit on uh, abortion, the creation of money, property rights, modern prosperity, environmental science. Well, let's let's talk now about uh, the U.S. elections, this whole Hillary versus Trump thing. And and I'll, I'll talk about one individual who I think his Facebook uh, is open, so I don't think he'll, he'll mind. Uh, some of these names on this list have surprising political opinions, but I don't want to talk about them because I'm private friends on Facebook and I see them post on Facebook and it's like, Really, you just posted that, but since their Facebook's not public, you don't want to you don't want to talk about things that you only know through a personal relationship. But I think Thomas Ord has an open open Facebook, and he posted a picture election night, uh, two thousand. Uh, what what are we talking about? Two thousand sixteen was the election. I think and, so. And uh, Trump wins over Hillary, and he's in Times Square, and he's got this sad, dejected face, and. And he has this post about, you know, it's, it's dead silent here. And and I think he had other posts that talk about, you know, uh, love has lost. It's and I'm sitting here thinking love has lost. You had Hillary Clinton. And what did Hillary Clinton do? She bombed Libya. And the reason she did that was to give herself a more fierce uh, profile so that she could she wouldn't look so weak in the elections. So she bombs a country. She destabilizes a country. Uh, she she takes out the leaders, and now who controls Libya is uh, the radical Muslim sects. Uh, it's it's it descended into war torn violence because we took out uh, Gaddafi, who was a, a stabilizing influence in the area, and why for her political aspirations. Then she destabilized Syria. Why for a pipeline, a pipeline that she would profit on, a pipeline that would undermine Russian dominance of uh, you know oil. And uh, so she, she's caused several wars. She, she's a pro-abortion individual. She's, you know, if you believe uh, what people write about her, she's been involved in a, a lot of individual deaths. People like Vince Foster, who uh, ended up randomly uh, killed by people with uh, submachine guns or whatever when he's driving around. You know, it's is this the party of love, the party party of abortion, the party of uh, destabilizing these third world countries for political agendas? It doesn't seem that way. And w WikiLeaks told us that. W WikiLeaks gave us uh, the information, the lowdown on her plans in Syria for profiting off of a pipeline. 
which is a major political move against Russia. And people are like, she, she's going to she's gonna stop war with Russia. She's going to stop war with Russia. She hates them. She's, she's a saber rattling against them. She wants to kill them. The only person that's going to get us out of war with Russia is Trump, who Russia seems to actually like. Putin, in his first meeting with Trump, he almost had a look of like adoration on his face. He was so delighted that Trump won. Trump was our not having a nuclear World War III against Russia. Hillary was possibly getting in that World War III nuclear annihilation. It's, it's crazy to me that in 2016, with all the information that's available, someone would still want Hillary Clinton in the White House. Uh, unless your thing is rampant murder of poor people all across the world uh, and just destruction and death as far as the eye could see, there's no reason to vote for her. It, I don't understand why you would want to. I get that Trump can be abrasive and maybe he's kind of an idiot at times and he's not your thing or whatever. But her track record, all the way back to her husband's presidency and before that when he was the governor in Arkansas, has been riddled with um, just rapes and murders yeah. and uh, flying drugs in to Arkansas. There was a whole property scandal situation. Like, it's not good, man. Yeah, she you would know? run personal hit campaigns against the women who had come out against Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton was a rapist. He, he was very into ladies, and so he had a lot of charisma, so he could get a lot of ladies, but sometimes he couldn't get the ladies, and he resorted to rape. Juanita Broadwick is a very famous uh, case. Bob Inert had Juanita Broadwick on his program multiple times talking about Clinton's rape. And uh, it's an official part of the Clinton Library now, now that Bob Inert went and protested the opening of uh, Bill Clinton's uh, personal library with uh, Juanita Broadwick. You know, Bill Clinton raped Juanita Broadwick type of material pamphlets. But uh, it's it's just the, the most corrupt candidate in all of U.S. history. It seems like they ran. And uh, people on the left seem to care more about party affiliation than they do maybe i don't know maybe that's misinformation they don't understand these things they don't look into their candidates it's hard for me to understand just even on just just on abortion you know how how do you vote for the pro abortion individual there there are pro life democrats there's there's democrats who uh love life yeah even even a westboro baptist church hardcore calvinists they're all democrats by the way uh, there's, yeah, they're Democrats. Uh, there's pictures of the, you know, their, the, their main guy. I don't know the main, main guy. He just died recently, but he, Al Gore spent the night at his house. You know, they're Democrats. And so oh, wow. there's a whole wing of Democrats who have traditionally been conservative, pro-life, uh, pro-gun, you know, they exist. I mean, and, but these aren't the candidates that get pushed to the forefront of this party. I think that's a major no. failing on Democrat Christians not for pressing for these issues. Instead, they have they seem to have fallen onto party lines to, in order to promote pro-abortion candidates. Well, I think maybe in part two, they vote for the lesser of two evils. You know, they, they perceive Donald Trump or perhaps any Republican as a greater evil than Hillary Clinton. And maybe part of it is, um, you know, Hillary Clinton would advocate the killing of poor people somewhere else that's not here, but she's going to, in their mind, increase the prosperity of poor people in this country through social programs and things like that. 
if if the situation was reversed, perhaps, and she killed poor people here in the United States, maybe that would be enough uh, for them to look at her with some disdain and discredit her and not want to vote for her. In my experience, and, they, they don't even know about Syria and, and Libya. Those those two words do not ring a bell with Hillary Clinton. You know, uh, her name's not associated in their circles with those countries. Well, it's safe to assume just for anyone listening, whoever the president is, doesn't matter. They're going to be responsible for the death of some poor people in some other part of the world that's not the United States. But yeah, I mean, that's probably part of it too, is they're not familiar with what happened in Syria and Libya because that stuff's not on the news. You know, I guess you can't really turn the news on and you're not going to hear about the pipeline. You're not going to talk much about how Hillary Clinton you know, hamstrung Bernie Sanders in the presidential race and basically caused one of her own party members who I would say probably had definitely had a much better chance to beat Donald Trump than she did in a general election to not even make it to the general election because she was just so, you know, power hungry for herself and wanted to be the first woman president and all of that. And that's common knowledge. That's you cannot dispute the things that uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign did to Bernie Sanders. Right. And uh, Julian Assange, who's who runs WikiLeaks, he, he all but publicly declared that it was uh, Seth Rich, who was, who was his source for the WikiLeaks of the Democratic uh, Convention, their servers, those emails. And that guy winds up dead. He's killed. Yeah. Uh, he's not mugged. His, his, his money and wallet's not taken. And uh, just another casualty that uh, who killed this guy. I wonder if someone would take the effort and the time to figure out exactly how many individual people can be named um, that have died as a result of presumably decisions made by Hillary Clinton. Like, I wonder right. how long this would be. I mean, you're not going in, in all, all, all honestly, like it, it's not like a partisan issue. You're not going to find an Obama body count list. You're not going to find a Bernie Sanders body count list. You're not going to find, you know, uh, what are this, this new Cortez girl. You're not going to find a body count list associated with her or Elizabeth Warren for that matter. It's no. literally just, just one individual, one family. Yeah. The Clintons for sure. Obama, maybe I th he, he like had a hit list or something. I think I heard about that. Well, he, he had a private drone strike list, but, uh, that they're basically like terrorists. So he was, he was pressing the kill button on foreign nationals typically there might have been some u.s civilians i think i think one of them was a civilian and that went public and obama really didn't like the press and so when people think that trump is treating the press really badly and poorly obama did a lot to suppress news stories and he would go after journalists and he would uh, imprison them and uh, use his political position to suppress news stories and so obama hated the press a lot more than uh, uh, trump does trump just is mostly the, the talk. He he goes on Twitter and he's fighting an information campaign, whereas Obama was uh, fighting like a real legal campaign against journalists, whistleblowers. He cracked down on whistleblowers. Obama oh, did. I remember that, and that's that's disgusting. I mean, that's reprehensible. You know, you have someone within an organization that wants to, you know, blow the whistle on something, some injustice that's going on, like a legitimate injustice or abuse that's going on, and that person's going to be put in prison or have some ridiculous fine or, I mean, it's just nonsense, mm -hmm. but it's better than killing people. Yeah. You don't want to kill people. No, Anyways, 
I, I think we're we're all over the chart on today's podcast, all sorts of different issues. We're just talking about open theists. They they tend leftists. People in general tend to be leftists. There seems to be maybe something in personalities where people, uh, you know, are are maybe high in openness. Maybe that's the thing where if if you're high in openness, uh, then you're more likely to reject conservative values. You're more likely to reject. Uh, traditional values and you're open to new thoughts, new ideas. Whereas as most conservative Christians, they're probably pretty comfortable in their traditions and, you know, their life is going on uh, pretty well already. They, they might be used to their routine and, uh, an open theism shakes up that routine. Open theism creates uh, tension. It causes uh, mental, emotional distress because it's, it's new information that they, they know how to process. And so they might feel just just the just being a conservative, maybe to the typical conservative evangelical Christian, maybe they're less open to open theism just because of their personalities. Sure, yeah, I could get behind that. You know, um, I would say that that's a that's a quality that conservatives could borrow from from the left is that openness. You know, it's good to evaluate new ideas, challenge yourself, challenge what you think. You know, listen to new perspectives. That's kind of the um, the takeaway that I get from postmodern epistemology. You know, it's not it's not that there is no truth that can be found. It's it's that it's good to question your own beliefs. It's good to understand that everyone's got different perspectives. You know, that's a healthy healthy view to have as long as you're able to still have some central grounding truth. You know, which as Christians we find in Jesus Christ. So. Um, but I would encourage conservatives out there, openness is not a bad thing. Openness either is a great theolo- thing. Either theologically or politically. You should just welcome all the openness that you want, because after all, God is open. <laughs> after all, God is open. Uh, <clears throat> we should probably cut there, but I would like to try to give some practical advice to each side uh, before we leave. Ooh, uh, I, I think conservatives, right-wing Christians, individuals who identify with traditional conservatism, they should be open to, you know, a lot of them tend to be teetotalers. They hate alcohol. They hate uh, drugs. Drugs is a big thing. Drugs need to be illegal. We need to crack down and, uh, you know, have have the government step in and stop those things from happening. Uh, well, is there a biblical value for that? Conservatives should reevaluate whether the conservative values that they're pressing are biblical values. And if they're biblical values, is it a criminal issue or is it a moral issue? Because not all crimes should be laws and not all laws or not all, not all morality issues, not all sins should be legislated and not all legislation should be based on sins. If that makes sense, you know, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with speeding going five miles over the speed limit uh, in fact, if you're on a major busy highway and uh, all the other cars are going 10 miles over, if you're only going five miles over, you might be endangering others. And uh, the moral thing to do, the safe thing to do might be to drive 10 miles over the speed limit in order to keep up with traffic. So there's nothing inherently moral about speed limits. Just as an example of how there, there's a disconnect between what's legislated and what's a sin or what's morality. There's nothing inherently immoral about importing the wrong shrimp or like uh, e- exporting certain lobsters. I think one of the guys were busted for that. 
In fact, our federal code, uh, if you pull up the book, go to Amazon, you put in uh, three felonies a day. Each American right now commits three felonies a day. And uh, so, so you're claiming that every single American, if, if you equate laws and sin, your, your claim is basically that each, each American, American, just by the sheer fact that they're in America, they are physically located in the country. They're committing three unintentional sins per day just because of how the U.S. legal system is written, which is absolutely absurd to me. Yeah, for sure. So conservatives need to separate in their mind um, what's legislated from what's uh, morally expedient. And they also need to consider, reconsider what, what the extent of government should be, what the extent of legislation should be. Should the, the government be involved in, in telling us uh, how, to, how to live our lives in, in certain aspects? I don't know. Dr- drugs is the most common aspect because I know Bobby Ennier, he had a big debate on drugs on Huffington Post, and that was one of his values where this uh, smoking pot should be illegal. Well, yeah, well, I, I hear you. There might be negative consequences to smoking pot. Myself, I've never smoked pot. I've never done drugs. Um, so it's not like I'm trying to argue for some personal benefit. But it's, is, that a, is that something that really should be legalized? Is that something that should be codified? And then, then we need to spend taxpayer dollars in order to fight this crime? Or, or is the biblical idea is, is typically the actual crime is the crime? I mean, you don't illegalize something that might res- one day lead someone to murder someone. You you legalize the murder itself. Murder should be illegal. You don't you don't make the guns illegal. You make shooting someone illegal, right? Right. And if you if you can't look at American prohibition of alcohol and the amount of crime that came out of that and understand what the drug war in the United States is doing, and then look at the decriminalization of marijuana in California and how that caused the Mexican cartels to not be able to grow and sell marijuana anymore. If you can't look at those things and see the, the good in that and the evil that is coming out of uh, the government trying to force what they want on people, nothing that we say is going to help you, I don't think. Those are the best examples that I can think of, of of why the government should just leave all the drugs alone. I don't care if it's meth, heroin, crack, cocaine. You know, if... If someone wants to go that route, then they should be free to do it. And forcing it underground only creates and draws uh, the criminal element to it, in which creates more violence. I'm going to uh, go one step further, and I uh, that's a practicality argument. And even if having drugs legalized creates more problems, you know, I mean, we could, we could definitely impose a police state. We could definitely uh, install cameras in every single person's house with facial recognition software that just instantly sends all your crimes to the government. We could be on complete police state lockdown in this country if the country wanted to crack down on all crime and we would live oh so peacefully. But, uh, you know, um, that's not the government's role. That's, that's, uh, that's too far. That's an invasion of our, our, our freedom it's an invasion of our privacy and you're treating people like chattel rather than human beings and so yeah there are are going to be some issues that come along with having things legal there's going to be issues with uh, having my little ponies legal for adult males to watch because then they'll walk around wearing my little pony outfits you know and uh, that's a negative thing on society but that doesn't necessarily mean that 
you know, illegalizing that would, would solve that problem. It would, it would uh, force it in the underground. Uh, uh, I don't know what they're, the furries, but that's really Dude, not the role of government. If you criminalized older men wearing My Little Pony outfits, there would be a criminal element all of a sudden around older men wearing My Little Pony outfits. 100%. Because <laughs> people, because people want to wear My Little Pony outfits. Yeah, so it's, gonna... it's, it's a thing that I don't like in society, but I, just because you don't like it, there might be negative ramifications. They might be creeps and weirdos. Okay, so the, my brother's my brother's example that he he showed me is there was this child child pornography ring that was busted, and uh, like a hundred percent of them, all of them were hardcore Trekkies, and so maybe oh, no. maybe banning Star Trek maybe that's a public policy issue, uh, but myself I would not support banning Star Trek, <laughs> right? Um, even though it might have positive policy ramifications. Even if it is linked to pedophilia. Well, is that correlation or causation, though, I wonder? That, that, that's a good question. But let's pretend it's causation or let's pretend that it will drive these people somewhere else or whatever and it'll, it'll limit their behavior. Star, it, Trek, Star Trek's still okay because it shouldn't be illegal to watch Star Trek. It should be illegal to engage in child pornography. And, yeah, and for absolutely. Record, even, even in an anarcho-capitalist society, child pornography is not allowed. Yes. Okay. Someone engages in that, you just uh, go shoot them or right. something in Pretty an anarchist much. state. Yep. But, okay, so that's our advice for, to those on the right. Reevaluate what should be legal, what, what's, what's, what's actual moral, morally wrong, what should be legislated, and uh, where the overlap is, where the morals should be legislated and where they shouldn't. And I think a great example of, of a functioning society that's uh, filled with liberty is the Old Testament uh, theological state that allowed tons of liberty. There, you, you could read the law in one day and have a very good understanding of the legal system. It will take you uh, like uh, 100,000 years to read all the U.S. regulations and codes. It, you, you would die before you get through all of it. It's just there's just so much rules and regulations in the modern American state. And so we yeah, would... It was, it was consensual too. You know, you weren't... If you wanted to be a part of the community and you wanted to worship Yahweh and you wanted to be associated with the people of Israel and the people of God, then these are the rules that you had to follow in order to do that. Mm -hmm. so. Okay, so our advice to the people on the left. Okay, so the right wing, reevaluate what should be illegal. Stop, stop being uh, so traditional, conservative. Uh, you know, be, have an open mind. Be able to go. be able to defend why things should be the way that you say that they are. To those on the left, they also need to look at the Bible, I'd say, and and reevaluate biblical morality and see if their morality aligns to biblical morality. I mean, yeah. there sh there should be limits. Infanticide, you know, even this Virginia governor, he's saying that we should kill live babies. They should be out there protesting this. They should be out there saying our own party needs to strongly denounce this. Even if, if you don't think an unborn baby is a human being, killing live babies infanticide, yeah, you should be out there. If you don't do that, what you're doing is you're endorsing murder, and uh, we shouldn't be doing that. Um, care about what God cares about is, uh, is my advice, I'd say.
Yeah, and just stop killing people in general, you know, wars and all that, and just, you know, be pro-life. Yeah, war in general. Uh, Trump Trump said, I'm going to pull out of Syria. The left went crazy. This was the war that they opposed when, uh, you know, Bush was talking about Syria or whatever. Uh, Trump comes in office. They start talking about Syria again, how we should be out of Syria. He finally tries to pull us. General Mattis, who's a Democrat, resigns his position, and the whole left says, oh, we should be in Syria. Why should our troops be in Syria? Why why were we in Afghanistan? Why are we in Afghanistan? No one has the answers to why we currently have soldiers in Afghanistan. No one knows. Bring our troops out. How long has that war been going on for? That's like Longer than my kids now? have been alive. My children have That's... been at war their entire lives. Yeah. It's like 18 years the United States has been at war in Afghanistan. That's nuts. For what? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if we don't we don't have friends over there. We don't have anything. At least in Iraq, we had the Kurds. The Kurds were our friends. Uh, they were they, they had a large Christian population. They they met strategic American policy objectives. Saddam was uh, genociding the Kurds, and we had legitimate, uh, philosophically sound reasons to go to war in Iraq to put down this genocidal maniac and, and support our friends, the Kurds, who George W. Bush Sr., or George H. Bush, or whatever, he let them down. He, he claimed that he'd support them, and they, they rose up against Saddam, and Saddam killed them all. And so Bush Jr. came in and uh, rectified his his father's mistakes. We we had legitimate reasons for Iraq. I don't know why we're in Afghanistan, though. I don't know why we're in Syria. No, I don't know why we're anywhere in Africa. You know, I don't get it. There's no reason other than war's big money, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe people on the left just like killing. Maybe just people in government in general maybe just like killing other people. Maybe that draws them to government positions. I don't know. Right. So uh, uh, be pro-life. Uh, also, freedom. Be pro-freedom. Um, you know, the state is a very murderous institution. The, the main killer of humans throughout history has been the government. Uh, communist Russia, about 80 million uh, or 60 million under Mayos China, about 80 million. And these numbers, you could uh, if you if you Google demicide. Uh, like people side, so demos is people. Demi side. There's a Hawaii educational uh, educational site that that categorizes the number of dead bodies from government, and it's just astounding. And it's these collectivists who think in in ideological terms. It's us versus them. It's it's the proletariat versus the bourgeois. It's a it's a class warfare. In China, we need to kill all our teachers. Pol Pot, he had to exterminate those who were who are learned, those people who opposed his political objectives. It, it was it was very very what's what's the word I'm looking for where where it's in group, out group. It's it's identity politics is what I'm looking for. Identity politics is cancer. Identity politics leads to death and destruction. It's it's a bad system it's a bad way to think it destroys individual liberty it treats people like chattel rather than rational functioning human beings and dehumanizes we should be treated as individuals and we should be treated as functioning rational adults amen so those are our advices to both sides uh you know and uh be be high in openness uh, and listen to other people before you react you know, don't don't automatically judge 
someone else who who you just want to demonize. All right, may, maybe now you could uh, finish with your uh, you know God is open and uh, that little catchphrase because that was a good ending, and then we could just rehash it and then we could end it there. I'm okay. gonna put you on the spot to make it awkward. Man, I don't even know if I remember it now. Oh, was it? Be high in openness, both theologically and politically, because after all, God, God is, open. is open. Okay, we'll end us there. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of political rants here. So if you have any comments or questions or you want to curse us out or anything like that, uh, just put a comment in the YouTube section or start a thread on, on God is open. Thanks for listening. Going to make